0: Alright, welcome back to our first proper mythology class. Now that we've got something to talk about, we can finally get into the content instead of the structure. Um, But before we get into the actual myths, I wanted to take a week and spend some time talking about what exactly we mean by myth, what exactly these myths are used for, how myths work in short... Um, And the first thing that I usually do when we are in an on-campus environment is I have an entire class session reserved for a conversation about what myth actually is. Um, Whether or not we'll get the chance to do that, I find it kind of unlikely, but I wanted to sort of draw some parameters before we start talking about um, what Lewis and Plato and Tolkien have to say about myth, Um, largely because... It's kind of confusing. Like, myth is one of those words that does not have a very strict, orderly definition. Um, And I know that in the whole business of classifying stories, there's all this complexity to it. Um, Like, when we say, what is the difference between, say, a myth and a normal story, or a myth and a legend, or a myth and, you know, a novel, for example, um, it's kind of confusing and gets confusing quickly. Like, we all have a fairly vague understanding of what a myth is, like, it's a story usually ancient, from ancient Greece and Rome especially, Um, but we also think of, like, Norse myths and Japanese myths and Persian myths, so location really isn't terribly helpful. Um, But they're an old story, and they usually have, like, gods or heroes or monsters hanging around, Um, but really that's it, and that's not especially helpful. Um, because, you know, then you get into questions like, well, okay, is the Bible a myth? And now we're already in over our heads. Some people might say, well, sure, the Bible is a myth. It's got your gods, it's got your heroes, not so much with the monsters, but that's okay. You don't necessarily need monsters and you can maybe consider Satan a monster. But then you run into another group of people who say, no, it's not a myth because it's true. And already we have a disagreement about what exactly the definition of myth is. Should we understand myth as being only untrue stories versus true stories? Or should we see myth as sort of not interested in truth or falsehood? Um, Additionally, we have, you know, issues of content. Like, we just said provisionally that there are gods, heroes, and monsters in myth. Um... But there are also gods, heroes, and monsters in other forms of stories as well. Like, you know, you have gods hanging around in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. You have gods hanging around in the this Book of Wonder by Lord Dunsany. Um, you have monsters hanging around in all sorts of fantasy and science fiction stories today. Um, and heroes, well, heroes are all over the place. Like, you have heroes in, you know, contemporary, like... Uh, science fiction stories you have heroes in superheroes you have s- heroes in like noir detective stories i mean heroes are virtually in all of our stories and that might lead you to conclude that literally all stories are myths um and there is a certain amount of truth to that like let me not let me sort of poke at that because in the original greek the term muthos where we get myth from, like it's literally the same letters, um, it just means story. Like, the Greeks did not see a distinction between a myth and any other kind of story. It was just one word. Um, so in a sense, all stories are myths. Um, and we're kind of using the term inappropriately when we abscond with it in English. Um, But I also kind of want to push back against that, because at the same time, like when we say the word myth now, you recognize that some stories are myths and some stories are not myths. Um, You recognize that the story of Zeus throwing Hephaestus from Mount Olympus so that he breaks his back on the mountain where he lands, that's a myth. But, say, the Matrix is not a myth. Or if it is a myth, it's a very different kind of myth. Um, and then you get into other stuff, like think of this books that you read in high school, like your, you know, your various required texts, your Of Mice and Men, and your Lord of the Flies, um, your Raisin in the Sun, um, all these sorts of books, you know, they aren't myths, right? Like... They don't have a whole heck of a lot in common with the myth of Orpheus, or Zeus throwing Hephaestus off of Mount Olympus, or, you know, the Garden of the Hesperides, as Lewis likes to emphasize. Um, There's a fundamental distinction between them. Um... But it's hard to put your finger on in most cases. Like, even if you look at a fantasy novel, if you pick up one of the old Dragonlance books, or if you read something a little bit more modern, like uh, Harry Dresden and Jim Butcher's Dresden Files, um, like, you'll find gods and monsters and heroes and all sorts of things floating around the margins. Like, Neil Gaiman especially, in his sort of breed of fantasy, likes to borrow from myth frequently. But that doesn't mean that he's writing myth. Um part of that again I suspect might be our inclination to make it like make it so only old stories can be myths but I think part of it too the more effective way to approach this question of what is myth is to quit looking at what a myth contains and instead look at how a myth is told and how it is used Um, And part of that I want to talk about with Lewis and Plato, but before we even get to those, I want to sort of point out exactly what I mean by that. Um, Like, we have tons of ways of classifying stories. Like, if you hang around an English classroom for any period of time, in college or even in high school, you will run into lots of different stories. Um, if you hang out on the internet and talk about movies or talk about books or talk about video games for any length of time, you will run into different ways of classifying stories. Um, and there are kind of two major sort of approaches to the classification of stories that I want to touch on before we get to like, how myth factors into that. The first is structural. Structural. Like, if you hang out in an English class for any length of time, you will learn that there is this sort of academically recognized distinction between the different ways a story can be told. There is a difference between a short story and a novel, a novel and a novella, a novella and an epic poem, an epic poem from any number of other kinds of poems, and that again from like the plays of Shakespeare, the Elizabethan theater, as opposed to even more contemporary forms of theater. Um, Like on my bookshelf, just from where I am sitting at my computer, I can see plays, novels, short story collections, novellas, stories told in other forms like epic poetry like and this doesn't even require me to turn my head um let alone when you get into things like romances versus you know the novel proper um like the invention of the novel is usually placed at around the 18th century Um, most scholars agree that the first novel ever written was Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe um But that means that, you know, Paradise Lost, not a novel, because, again, epic poem. Gulliver's Travels, not a novel, because Gulliver's Travels is a travelogue. It has a completely different structure than the novel usually does. And if you actually pin an academic to a wall and say, okay, so what is a novel then? You're going to get one of two answers. Um, The first answer is length. A novel is different from a novella or a short story because it's longer. A novella is less than 50,000 words. A novel is greater than 50,000 words. And really, it's that basic sometimes. Um, but the other side of it will be w- that a novel is a prose story. And it is it a prose story specifically about psychology on some level. Um, like, if you're looking for what is the content of a novel, what sh- changes when Daniel Defoe writes Robinson Crusoe as opposed to, like, The Tale of Genji or The Romance of the Three Kingdoms or any of the, the prose storytelling methods that existed before Defoe, um, you probably are ultimately going to get into, like, it's the Western canon and therefore we're talking about race and colonialism and ugly stuff like that. But if you actually have somebody who knows what they're talking about and who doesn't sort of get bogged down into that, What you're probably going to come up with is realism and psychology as the sort of content of what makes a novel a novel. Um, But at the end of the day, it's really down to structure, approach. How do you write this story? Um, On the flip side, the more common way that we use to talk about stories and the way that stories can be classified is genre. Um, What does a story contain? What elements should we expect? Um, And by this I mean, like, any time that you go to a Goodreads or a Letterboxd or if you, like, see a promotional advertisement for a video game or a movie or something, they will usually tell you, this is a science fiction movie, or this is an action video game, or this is um, a detective novel. Um, And you sort of, like, have these natural assumptions about what that category includes. And rather than it being a structural thing, like the novel versus the epic poem versus you know, other storytelling forms, now we're talking about like what you can come to expect within the context of the genre. In a Western, you will expect to see cowboys in the American West. In a science fiction story, you'll expect to see spaceships or futuristic technology or really speculative elements, perhaps even alternate history. Um, In a fantasy novel, you'll expect to see magic. You'll expect to see things like elves and other races. Um, You'll expect to see a world probably located in history unless you clarify. So like Jim Butcher in his modern fantasy is frequently known as urban fantasy. So now we have a subgenre, a genre within the genre. If somebody tells you that this is a superhero movie, you can expect to see a leading heroic figure saving the day from various villainous figures. Um, This is what we mean by genre. And what I want to stress is when you talk about myth, neither the structural approach nor the content approach is really all that great for differentiating a myth from any other kind of story. Um, Again, there are heroes in all kinds of stories, not just myths. And a myth can be told in a variety of ways. Um, Like, in the course of this class, we're going to see epic poems, like those of Homer and Hesiod. We're going to see just catalogued myths, like little snippets of storytelling, like from Apollodorus. Prose versions, but not even at the length of a short story, more like a vignette. Um, We're going to see plays, like Oedipus Rex or the Medea. Um, The fact of the matter is, the myth's structure is... Of no consequence to the actual myth itself. You can tell a myth in a variety of different forms and structures as a play, as a novel, as a story, as a poem, any kind of way. Likewise, what constitutes a myth will not be something you can determine based on what sort of details or elements are contained. You can have a myth set in the future like a science fiction myth. You can have a myth retold as a fantasy story, and frequently do, um, hence why Neil Gaiman tends to use that in his fantasy writing. Um, but you can also have a myth that's told as a contemporary you know, detective story or a contemporary realistic story. Um, a lot of superhero uh stories these days are retellings of myths in their own right. Um, the two genres are actually fairly well adapted to one another. Um, but what I also want to stress is that our usual classification where, like, myths are old things, that's always struck me as really superficial. Um, in theory, we should be telling myths today. Um, There's no reason why myths have to be relegated to, like, a certain period of time that, you know, after the 17th century, we just got done with myths and now we don't tell myths anymore. Why would that be the case? Why would our culture change the way that it functions on a very basic level? Why would it not tell this whole subsection of story? And the obvious answer here is, well, science science has changed our perspective. We are no longer interested in explaining the world with these fanciful tales, these stories. But now we're actually a lot closer to a definition of myth than we probably would have been a moment ago. Um, Because now we see that there's more to do with myth in the way and the reason we tell myths than we would with what we find in the myths. What this sort of suggests is that science is a replacement for myth. Science does the same job that myth used to do, um, which of course makes us ask the question, what do myths do? What is the role of myth in culture? What did it do for the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, the Norse, um, the ancient Japanese, the Persians, etc.? Um, How is it that we have somehow outgrown myths, replaced them with this new thing, science? Um, And the obvious answer to this is myths explained things in nature. Um, It explained the origin of the world. It explained why there's thunder. It explained why there are earthquakes. Um, And myths did have this function. Um, If you asked an ancient Greek why we were having an earthquake, they would respond because Poseidon is angry at us. God knows why it's Poseidon, we'll get into that later, but that's probably the answer that you would receive. Likewise, if you asked an ancient Greek, where did the world come from, they will have recourse to the myths. Well, first there was Gaia, and then there was Uranus, and they had sex, and they gave birth to the Titans, and the Titans have, and so on and so forth. Um, That's their explanation for how things came to be. Now, you ask a modern American the same question, and you're likely to get one of two answers. One of them is the Big Bang. Where did the world come from? Well, there was this Big Bang, and it propelled matter all over the universe, and then eventually some of that matter, like, grouped together because of gravity, and now we have planets and solar systems, and that's where the world came from. The other answer that you're likely to get from a modern American, anyway, is... Christianity and their explanation. So God created the world in seven days. First he made light and then he made like the waters and then so on and so forth. And we will absolutely talk about Genesis one to three later on in the class. But what I want to stress here is that as far as the function is concerned, I'm not sure science has replaced myth. So far as it has become a new mode of telling myths. Because at the end of the day, like, if you take the Greek myth for the creation of the world. So first there was chaos, and then Gaia, and then Uranus, and they had sex, and then you get humans. Versus the origin myth of Christianity. So first there was God, and then he created the world in seven days. And then you look at science... So first there was this big bang, and then there was matter all over the place, and the matter made planets, and we live on a planet. At the end of the day, isn't science just telling a story? Like, don't get me wrong, the method here is very different. Science uses research, it uses data, it uses all of these um, tools that we have determined as reliable, practical ways of like cataloging and understanding the universe. Um, And I do not want to de-emphasize that, but I also want to stress that there's a fundamental difference between, like, the business of science, data collection, making hypotheses, creating a likely explanation, and then the explanation that it produces. In general, most of the people listening to this lecture are probably not hardcore scientists. If you are, great. You probably understand this stuff very differently than most of your contemporaries. But if you ask the average American to explain where the world came from, they're not going to be able to cite the explanations. They're not going to be able to tell you about like, microwave signals and the measurements of you know, galaxies gradually separating farther and farther apart from one another, which is most likely explained by the explosion that presumably created the universe. Um, instead, they're going to tell it like a story. They're going to say, well, in the beginning, there was stuff. And it blew up, and now it's in different places, but that's how planets are made. And that's just a story. Like, it doesn't have characters, it doesn't have gods floating around, it doesn't have, you know, monsters like the Hydra or like Tiamat of the Babylonian myths to explain all this stuff. But at the end of the day, it still basically has the same structure as a story. I mean, science on one level, is not storytelling. It is data collection. It is creating hypotheses. It is seeing what functions, what works. But when it comes to science explaining the universe, its origins, our history, even the theory of evolution, science frequently to communicate to us, the lay people, it uses stories. It uses metaphors. It uses allegorical language. In part because our language is kind of structured to be that way. Like we cannot just communicate in a series of numbers like computers do. Um, Instead, we communicate by telling stories to one another. If somebody says, where did human beings come from? The answer is not here is a series of data and, you know, hypotheses and records and, like, this is all the information that Darwin got and all of his record-keeping and this is all the stuff that Gregor Mendel found and this is how, like, genetics fundamentally work. No, typically what we will do is tell a story. So all living things give birth to new living things and these new living things will either survive or not survive based on how good they are at dealing with their environments. And the ones that do the best are the strongest, and they will survive and make better and better and better versions of themselves until you get humans. And that is a story. Like, a different kind of story than we're used to, but what I want to emphasize is that the distance between what science tells us about the world, or rather what we tell ourselves with science as the foundation about the world, And what myths do are very, very similar. Um, And this is not, like, a dig against science. I am not trying to emphasize it like, Science is garbage! Um, I want to stress the whole distinction that we talked about earlier with, like, myth being synonymous with lies. I want to throw that out. Like, just, let's start there. Because, honestly, I have no idea how many of the myths we study in this class are rooted in fact. Um, Like, one of the biggest myths that we're going to be talking about is the myth of the Trojan War. Um, The Greeks sailed 1,000 ships to Troy, and they sat at the walls for 10 years, and finally, using the vehicle of the Trojan horse, Troy fell, the Greeks looted the place, and then they all went home. And the fact of the matter is, a lot of that story is probably mythic. Like, when Homer tells us about, you know, the gods fighting over Troy and, like, you know, empowering certain heroes and, like, attacking others, probably mythic. Didn't likely happen. Certainly not in our sort of historical verification scientific point of view. Um, But at the same time, there was a Troy, and it was in all likelihood attacked by the Mycenaeans, the early Greeks. They sacked the place, and they all went home. It was a huge ordeal, probably took a long time. And therefore, this myth is rooted in fact. It's rooted in truth. So, the distinction between, you know, myth and science as one is true and one is false, I want to just dispose of. It's not helpful for our purposes. Um, A lot of these myths probably were rooted in fact, but it's fact so long removed that we can't verify them. Like, I don't know if there was a guy named Heracles, but there probably was a really strong guy, maybe even named Heracles, who everybody was really impressed by and who probably did a few of the things on the list of his labors, and as a result, we have these stories about him. Likewise, in a more modern setting, there probably was a King Arthur, and he probably did have knights. He probably did not have a sorcerer named Merlin, but really, how where is the line there? Maybe he did have an advisor named Merlin who was preternaturally smart and seemed to predict things before that they happened. Did he have access to magic? Probably not. But where is the line? And what I want to stress is finding the line is not going to be helpful in this class. Um, The line is buried. We don't know where it is. Um, So for a lot of our ancient peoples, this was science for them. And in a very real sense, science today we produces stories that we tell to ourselves like the ancient peoples told myths. Um, again, not digging on science here. Not my intention. What I want to stress is the similarity. The fact that myth and science function the same way in understanding the way that the world works. Um, that's a big part of what myth does. But it's not the only part. Um, See, the other part of what myth is, the fact that it explains the world is great, but the fact of the matter is is that it's more than just explaining the world. Um, In the same way that, like, when we talk about, you know, scientific stories, the stories that science tells us, we identify, we teach... We communicate these stories. Um, Like, one of the most divisive issues in how should school be conducted, and it has been divisive since the 90s, is, and probably much earlier than that, um, is do we teach evolution or do we teach creation? Like, do we even bother to teach creation in schools? Um, And I don't want to get into the politics involved in that. Like, people have said dumb things on both sides of that conversation. I definitely do not want to, like, get into that dark territory. But why is this an an important issue? Why does it matter? And what I want to stress is it does matter, first off. um, And it matters because this is about more than just truth. This is about who we are. Like, don't get me wrong, truth is super important and we should absolutely use the best version, like the most well-verified version of events that we can come up with. There is a huge difference between a bad scientific story and a good scientific story. Bad evidence and good evidence. Um, But what I want to stress is that it it is important because we as a culture have these myths at the root of who we are. And we need to communicate these myths to future generations and reconfirm them to ourselves. Um, The reason why Greeks told myths was, yes, to explain the world. But the reason why they kept telling them was to retain their sense of cultural identity. Um, They all believed in the same gods and they prescribed that belief in the same gods to make sure that everybody was on the same page, um, to distinguish their convictions from the convictions of their enemies, um, to ensure that their legacy would endure for generations upon generations upon generations. Um, Like, Achilles will make this super clear in the Iliad. He will explicitly say um, that, you know, he is giving up his life in the Iliad to win honor, to be remembered to be a crucial part of the Greek culture. And we do the same thing. We tell stories about George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and, most recently, Alexander Hamilton. Um, And some of those stories are mythologized. Um, We make people out to be bigger and better than they were. We tell the story of George Washington chopping down the cherry tree because he was just so darn honest, even though that probably never happened. We celebrate Alexander Hamilton in the most recent musical by Lin-Manuel Miranda because he was an immigrant, because he was downtrodden, and those things are not 100% true as they're emphasized in the musical. But the musical works. It appeals to people. It solidifies our culture because it both ties in the importance of the Founding Fathers and the principles on which this country was made to the work that immigrants and the people from outside of the country and outsider perspectives in general have done to make that the case. Hamilton is not necessarily itself a myth, but it is certainly telling us a myth. A myth that we keep bringing up, keep reminding ourselves of. A myth that informs the way that our culture sees itself and sees the world around us. That's the function of myth, I think. That's what I'm going to be stressing in this class over and over and over again. Um, On one level, yes, it is going to be super important to know the details of the myth. Being able to tell the difference between Theseus and Agamemnon and Perseus is going to be, like, really a key component of understanding the myth. Um, But at the same time, I want you to be looking at these myths from the perspective of trying to understand how it fits into the culture and what the culture is doing by telling these myths. Um, And they're going to be doing a lot of different things. Like, there is no one single thing that myths do. It is not just to explain the world. It is not just to perpetuate culture. It is not just to justify religion. It is not just to remember fallen comrades and heroes. It is not just to distinguish oneself from one's enemies. It is doing all of those things and more. um, And will continue to do more. Like one of the things that I want you to imagine at this point in time is all of these functions bound up with one another in a way that we don't do today. Like, when you go to the movies and you watch, you know, Captain America, it is doing multiple things. But we do sort of recognize that there's a distinction between, you know, going to the movies and watching Captain America and seeing an exciting movie about, like, a really cool superhero who beats up bad guys and saves the world from going to class in high school and learning about science and learning about the way that the world works using the best, most cutting-edge technology that we have available and the best data that we have collected. There is a difference there. Um, But there wasn't for the Greeks, first off. And Captain America is doing more than just telling an exciting story, too. Captain America and Superman and Batman and all of these important stories that our culture tells itself especially the ones that we direct towards children, are very much about communicating our principles and communicating our cultural identity. Like Superman especially, Superman stands for truth, justice, and the American way. Do you see how that works? Why we tell our children to, you know, dress up as Superman for Halloween, to pretend to be Superman, to admire Superman? We tell them that because we admire Superman, and we want our children to be like Superman. We also admire truth, justice, and the American way. We also admire honesty. We also admire moral conviction. We admire someone who is willing to stand up for the little guy, to defend the weak and the downtrodden, to protect people who cannot protect themselves. Superman is what we want all of our children to become. Because we want to live in a better society. We want to live in a society where Superman's ideals are everywhere. And so we tell our kids, go watch Superman. Go be like him. And admittedly, like in a culture where Superman is like super dark and he now murders people, like... This is probably an indication of how far we've fallen from our original moral I- moral ideals. Um, especially if we're telling our kids to, you know, still emulate Superman when all the various versions of Superman are like rated R now. That's messed up. But le- that's a digression. What I want to stress is that we are telling children this because we want our children to learn these principles movies and books and video games as much as we want to like put them into this little box called entertainment and say that it doesn't matter and it doesn't affect anything it does affect things i mean mario or superman or percy jackson or any of the comic book heroes that we run into or any of like the movie heroes neo or john wick or you name it we as a culture, are telling ourselves this is what people should be like. Um, And that doesn't go for everyone. Like, there are absolutely complicated issues here, like anti heroes, like, you know, Joker as Joaquin Phoenix played him, or, you know, you get these, like, hard boiled detective stories about, like, gruff, grizzled men doing tough jobs and making hard calls, or you think of, like, Logan, um, where Wolverine is, you know, old and grouchy and murders people um, because the world has become tough and mean. Like, we admire those too, but we also admire those for the same reasons we admire the more obvious heroic figures, because they're willing to stand by their principles. Um, Mad Max may look very different from your average superhero movie, but at the end of the day, it's telling us the same thing. Be good. Be righteous. Stand up for what you believe in. Protect weak people, and do not just kowtow to the will of strong people, um... That's something that our culture treasures. These are principles that our culture admires. And as a result, we want to keep that going. So we tell our children to do this by telling these stories. We tell ourselves to do this by telling these stories. Um, that's what myth is for, I think. And as much as you know, I've tried to say there is a difference between myth and the rest of the stories... Um, What I want to stress is that in our modern culture, we tell stories with myths embedded in them all the time. Um, Like, Man of Steel is not necessarily a myth, but it has a myth at its root, the myth of Superman. Um, The whole Kingsman, the Secret Service, is not a myth all by itself. But it is sort of playing with two different myths simultaneously. The myth of like James Bond as secret agent protecting the interests of the world while not getting appreciated for it. And the myth of Pygmalion. The myth of how a wise mentor can produce someone who is valuable through their own creative work. Um, The sort of goodness that there is in raising up a successor, um, be it a son or a surrogate son or a daughter or a surrogate daughter, um, that's also a root myth in our culture, one that we frequently tell, one that has come up over and over and over again. Um, But we'll get into that later. So, Before we get into all of the bits that Tolkien and Plato and Lewis are going to add, I want to sort of operate with this basic definition in mind. A myth is a story that a culture tells itself to perpetuate its ideals, its values, and its way of looking at the world. Um, that's as close to a good definition of myth as I've seen. Um and notice that it is two-sided myths are not stories simply to be read myths are stories that a culture tells itself it both tells it and listens to it it both wants you to wants it to be heard but it also encourages you to tell it again one of the fundamental things we're going to see about myth in the Greeks and Romans and which we should see now is the fact that they're constantly retold in a variety of new settings in a variety of new sort of cultural assumptions um myths are stories that get told over and over and over again because they are somehow so valuable to us on this basic cultural or personal or ethical level that we need to constantly update them we need to constantly reinforce these stories make them new again um It's one of the hallmarks of the ancient myths, and it's absolutely one of the things you will see in modern myths as well. It is the same old story, but with a new coat of paint, with a new way of telling it. That's usually a pretty good indication that what you're dealing with is a myth. Um, But that absolutely brings us to Lewis. So if you are not looking at the Lewis reading, this would be a good time to open it up because I am absolutely going to be quoting it directly. Um, this is the ch- a chapter from Lewis's Experiment in Criticism, where he basically talks about like how to recognize a good book from a bad book, not by what's in the book, but by the people who are reading it. Which is super convenient for our purposes because we are also going to be looking at myth, not from the perspective of what is inside of the myth, but how is the myth functioning? What is it doing? How do we read it? What is the culture producing and reading the myth, thinking about the myth? Um, So first I want to sort of focus on the distinction that he draws here. Um, Notice those first three stories that he tells at the very beginning of this section. Compare the following, he said. One. There was a man who sang and played the harp so well that even beasts and trees crowded to hear him, and when his wife died, he went down alive into the land of the dead and made music before the king of the dead, till even he had compassion and gave him back his wife, on condition that he lead her up out of that land without once looking back to see her until they came out into the light. But when they were very nearly out, one moment too soon, the man looked back and she vanished from him forever." Now this, as Lewis will go on to emphasize, is a myth. This is the myth of Orpheus. It's probably one of the greatest myths in Western culture. It is one of the most frequently retold myths in Western culture. Perhaps the best iteration I can think of now is the uh, the musical Hades Town. It is once again a retelling of the myth of Orpheus, but with a new coat of paint and a new cultural update. Um, but it, obviously, this is a story important enough that it needs to be retold for nearly three thousand years or more um it is crucial it is speaking a deep like well-concealed truth that our culture assumes and accepts that death is permanent and that trying to beat death is something only achieved at great difficulty and probably not even achieved at all the possibility of escaping death is always fleeting um But look at that second one. There was a man who was away from home for many years, for Poseidon kept a hostile eye on him. And all that time the suitors of his wife were wasting his property and plotting against his son. But he got home with much hardship, made himself known to a few, saved his own life, and killed his enemies. And as he points out, this is Aristotle's synopsis of the Odyssey. And we are going to read the Odyssey in here. But Professor, you should ask, didn't Lewis just say, this is not a myth? Doesn't he go on to emphasize that this is not mythic in the same way that Orpheus is a myth? And that's true. Um, there is a clear-cut distinction between the myth of Orpheus with its, like, clear, obvious, immediate resonance with how we think about the world, and this story about a dude who, you know, has to come home, but he has to overcome all these obstacles to get there. That's true. Um... But there are sort of two things that make the Odyssey a myth, or at least closer to a myth, um, than the third thing that uh, Lewis will talk about, which we'll get to in a moment. First off, there is a mythic element here. Um, There is this... Like, even though the story itself does not have mythic qualities, cannot, like, be boiled down to something very simple and clear and immediately resonating, um, there is something mythic about this story. Like, the Odyssey is another one of those stories that you're going to see retold over and over and over again. Joyce tells it in Ulysses. Um, The Coen brothers tell it in Where, O Brother, Where Art Thou? Um, Like, this is one of those that comes up a lot. And I think the reason why is because there is something truly resonating, something mythic, about this idea of someone trying desperately to come home through many obstacles and challenges. Uh, it is an emphasis on home. Um, there and like we frequently use the term Odyssey to describe a mission or a quest of this nature a desperate attempt to return home despite all of the obstacles that get in our way but the other reason why this frequently falls into the category of myth is because the odyssey contains myth um in the telling of the odyssey homer tells us lots of stuff that is a myth like um the fact that odysseus has to visit the realm of the dead um and meet his past mother um, and talk to a seer to get information about where to go next, or the fact that Odysseus must face the decision to pass by Scylla or Charybdis. Scylla will eat six of his crewmen, but Charybdis will destroy his entire ship. Um, and frequently we see the decision between the, or the decision for the lesser of two evils in this context. Um, So on the one hand, it is kind of a myth, although it is a myth with a lot of extra trappings. But on the other hand, it also has myths in the telling, um, which definitely makes this a warranted subject for our class. Um, But I also want to focus on this third kind of story. Let us suppose, Lewis says, for I certainly won't write it, a synopsis on the same scale of Barchester Towers, Middlemarch, or Vanity Fair, or of some much shorter work like Wordsworth's Michael, Constance Adolph, or The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. What he is emphasizing here is these are stories that rely on the way that they are told for their value. Like, think of Pride and Prejudice, for example. And Pride and Prejudice is probably as close to the line as we're going to get. Like, it's probably as close to myth as one of these great 19th century Victorian novels is likely to come. Um, Because Pride and Prejudice tells this story that does get retold over and over and over again. But one of the reasons why Pride and Prejudice has endured for so long is because it is social satire. Um, It is making a commentary about our condition. Um, Jane Austen tells jokes in rapid succession in Pride and Prejudice. Um, But at the same time, you'll notice that most of our versions of Pride and Prejudice are historical pieces. Um, It refers to a time that is lost that a lot of people want to go back to. And a lot of the draw is all of that Victorian uh, agita about romance. Like, you know, this very strict restriction against open displays of sexual interaction. Um, And the sort of courtesy that is laid over it instead there's a certain draw to that. Um, and I suspect as much as Pride and Prejudice has been relocated out of the 19th century for various retellings, in some way the DNA of the 19th century is written into it. You cannot escape it. Um, likewise if you told the story of Dante's Inferno without Dante's uh, beautiful poetry, it would lose a lot. Um, It is bound up with his Renaissance worldview. So, most of what we consider contemporary novels, like most of the stuff that you can buy off the shelf in Barnes & Noble, isn't a myth. Specifically because the way that the story is told is bound up with the story that is being told. You cannot separate them. Um, And this is what Lewis is very much emphasizing. Uh, Because on the one hand, Lewis is seeing that there's this weird sort of dichotomy here. Like, the reason why he tells this story about myth in general is he's trying to draw this distinction between the literary readers and the unliterary readers. Um, Which is a little bit elitist, I admit, um, but it's part of his project. And for Lewis's purposes, the literary reader is the reader who comes to a book over and over and over again looking for more than just a thrill or entertainment or action. Where the unliterary reader is the person who is just in it for, like, the one-shot, you know, endorphin rush of watching something cool happen. Um, And this is absolutely, like, a tricky distinction to thread, Uh, But the reason why it gets even trickier is because myth complicates this. Myths are exciting stories, but they're also stories that have deep, meaningful, resonant-like significance to us. They are more than just the action. Um, So myths are frequently enjoyed by both the literary and the unliterary, although they're enjoyed in very different ways. Um, So You know, take one of our contemporary stories, like an action movie. Something that everybody likes to go watch. Something like James Bond. James Bond does have a certain sort of myth at the core of it. Like, we can talk about that at a later date. Um, But the reason why you watch a James Bond movie, or at least the, like, worse James Bond movies, is not because you are interested in, like tapping into deep, meaningful truths about the human condition, you're there to watch the explosions and to see cool stuff and stunts and, you know, stuff that you won't see every day. You want to, like, indulge in the fantasy of being a super cool, super suave, super sexy, um, super, like, powerful person who always, you know, saves the day at the end of the day, even though he, like, murders people for fun and stuff like that. Um, James Bond isn't mythic in that sense. Uh, Likewise, you know, you go to see contemporary superhero movies as frequently for the big exciting set pieces, the explosions, the big CG effects, stuff like that. You watch John Wick for the fight scenes. Um, That's okay. That's perfectly normal. But what what Lewis is emphasizing here is that that is not what makes a myth a myth. Um, that is surface. That is the way that it's told. A good action movie may have a myth at the foundation of it, as I suspect a movie like um, like Mad Max Fury Road or any of the Superman interpretations tend to have. But at the end of the day, you watch the movie for the way that it is performed, the way that it presents itself. Um, the underlying myth cannot be abstracted in most cases. Or if it can be, it's abstracted already when it is brought into the movie. Um, Like I go to watch Christopher Nolan movies because they're smart and they're like, they have great practical effects and because they're exciting and well plotted. um, That's not myth. That's something different. Um, And one of the things that he is emphasizing here is that when your average reader or watcher of movies or player of video games approaches something, it's purely for the novelty. It is just for the excitement. Um, In most cases, they will not watch the same movie twice, because they've already got everything there is to get out of it. But let's focus a little bit deeper on what exactly makes a myth different. uh, Because he has a pretty good list, which I think is really valuable as a sort of base for our understanding of the way that myths work. Um, So he brings up six points, um, and I want to talk about each of these six in turn, because they're all sort of interesting and do inform the way that myths work. Um, so first off, he says, one, it is, in the sense I have already indicated, extra-literary. Those who have got the same myth through Natalie Combs, Lompierre, Kingsley, Hawthorne, Robert Graves, or Roger Green have a mythical experience in common, and it is important, not merely a highest common factor. In contrast to this, those who have got the same story from Brooks Romeus and Shakespeare's Romeo share a mere highest common factor, in itself valueless. See... The point that he is emphasizing here is that the myth, where a myth can be found, resonates no matter how it's told, no matter who is telling it, no matter what the form surrounding that myth may be. Now, of the bunch that he lists, I'm probably the most familiar with Nathaniel Hawthorne, Um, and it is... Significant to note that Hawthorne both, like, retells old myths, but also will just invent his new myths from whole cloth, many of which are, like, really cool and really interesting and really resonant. Um, but what he is emphasizing here, what what Lewis is drawing a distinction between when he says there's a difference between getting a myth through Hawthorne and all of these other writers who tell the same myth, and getting the story of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet from Brooks Romeus, there's a rather significant and a rather subtle difference here. For Hawthorne, for the myth tellers, myth is the story itself given value. Like, all you need to do is tell that basic story like he does with Orpheus earlier. And it is something more profound. Something more than just a retelling. The kernel is the valuable thing in this case. How Hawthorne tells it, or Roger Green tells it, or Kingsley tells it, does not matter. You will get the same root effect in any case. But by contrast, the difference between Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet and all future tellings of Romeo and Juliet, whether you saw it as the Zeffirelli version, or if you saw Baz Luhrmann's Romeo plus Juliet in the 90s, it is the story, but it is not abstracted. It is just retold. For Hawthorne and for myth, the story itself can be retold in an endless variety of ways because the story will stay the same in every case. It will retain its own integrity. It will be the most valuable part of your artistic experience in all of these situations. But the fact of the matter is anybody who interprets Romeo and Juliet, who performs Romeo and Juliet, is still 100% indebted to Shakespeare. You cannot remove Shakespeare's telling of Romeo and Juliet from the story of Romeo and Juliet. Like, part of the reason why myths, at least ancient myths in Greece and Rome, have sort of gotten the name of myth is because we've lost track of who the first teller was. Like, we may have Hesiod giving us the first recorded instance of the creation of the universe. We may have Homer giving us the first recorded uh, instance of the myth of Demeter, But we assume that it's because of a tradition that predates Homer and Hesiod, that goes back maybe hundreds of years before, could perhaps be the result of entirely different mythic traditions altogether. Whereas, no matter what you do to Romeo and Juliet, short of radically transforming the story itself into something completely unrecognizable, you will always recognize the story of Roman, Romeo and Juliet not only as that story, but as being an invention of Shakespeare's. The myth will take on new life. It will become its own thing. It will transcend the author who wrote it. Whereas a good story that is frequently retold will always just be indebted to its creators. Does that make sense? I ask this knowing full well that you cannot respond. But I want you to think about that, that distinction. And you can absolutely push back on it. Like, maybe it is just a bullshit distinction that Lewis is making here. Maybe it is something too abstract to really be put into practice. But I think he's onto something. And it's something that I want to stress in this class as we look at myth. Now, he goes on and says that the second second the pleasure of myth depends hardly at all on such usual narrative attractions as suspense or surprise even at a first hearing it a myth is felt to be inevitable and the first hearing is chiefly valuable in introducing us to a permanent object of contemplation more like a thing than a narration which works upon us by its peculiar flavor or quality rather as a smell or a chord does sometimes even from the first there is hardly any narrative element The idea that the gods and all good men live under the shadow of Ragnarok is hardly a story. The Hesperides, with their apple tree and dragon, are already a potent myth without bringing in Heracles to steal the apples. This is the second thing I want to stress. Myth doesn't necessarily have to be a story at all. Like, I've been emphasizing, you know, the story quality of myth this entire lecture, and it probably got fairly tenuous when I got into stuff like, you know, the basic assumption that, you know, Superman is a good person and we want to be like him, or the fact that, like, the Big Bang is what created the universe. Notice that he's stressing here the story isn't crucial to the myth. The myth is somehow an embodiment of something bigger than even a story can capture. It's an idea. An idea that we almost live under and labor under and, like, shapes the way that we see the universe. So take the example of Ragnarok that he presents here. What he's getting at is roughly the same as what is communicated in Thor Ragnarok, if that's the version you're most familiar with. This is the idea in Norse mythology that the world is doomed. Like, for the Norse, everybody loses. Like the gods, Odin and Thor, they're all doomed to fight this last battle and they will all die in the last battle. And all the human allies they have are going to die in this last battle. And in this last battle, the world is going to be destroyed and unmade and the Frost Giants, the evil Frost Giants, the villains of the universe, along with Loki, are going to win. Even though Loki dies. And many of the Frost Giants do as well. What they are asserting unlike many other mythic cultures, is that the world is doomed, we're doomed to lose, and we should fight anyway. And that is a powerful mythic idea. Like, that's the sort of assumption about the universe that causes everything about the Norse culture to coalesce. This idea that we are doomed, but it's worth it to fight anyway, is incredibly potent. It is basically like the myth underlying all lost causes. It is the myth that causes us to, to get excited when we see, you know, some last stand, some last desperate stand of an honorable group against an overwhelming opposition. It's what causes us to root for the underdog, even when it's a dumb thing to do. Even when it doesn't make sense. I think that Ragnarok taps into that, and Lewis sees that that's how that works. This is more than just a story. But also notice the other detail here. It's inevitable. You will not, under any of the myths that we read this semester, be surprised, in all likelihood. And if you're going into it expecting a dramatic twist, you're doing it wrong. Myths don't have dramatic twists. Myths feel ponderous and inevitable from the first word. When you start the myth of Orpheus and say, so there was this dude who was so good at singing that, you know, even rocks and animals would come to listen to him, but his wife died, you know this is going to be bad. You know it's going to be, like, inevitably bad. There is no way out of this situation for Orpheus. Fate is a huge part of the Greek perspective, and it is very much something that informs nearly all myth. We are stuck in our ways. The people, the players, the setting is all rooted. It will not change. It will not move. Our actions will not affect it. Um, So there is an inevitability about it, a fadedness, a dealing with the basic constituent factors of human nature which are not something that can be changed or subject to change. That's part of what makes myth potent what makes it powerful. Um, so I'm going to spoil myths for you left and right. Like, it's just going to happen. We are going to read the story of the Trojan War and Odysseus's return from the Trojan War before we read the Iliad and the Odyssey because I want it to be spoiled for you. Um, everybody who heard these myths knew them going in. Uh, they are not surprised by the events. They are not being told something that they did not know. They know how it's going to pan out. Their joy, their catharsis, their interaction with the myth has much more to do with a re-experiencing of these emotions, of this story, if there's a story, or this experience, if it's more than that, than it does with like narrative twists or good plotting or anything like that. Um, and I realize, you know, we're very much a part of spoiler culture now. Like, you go to see a movie and you tell everyone, don't tell me what happened, because you want to experience for the first time, brand new, not expecting what's coming. But that's not the way that myth works. Um, myths are stories that you appreciate by experiencing them, no matter how many times you do. They don't get old, in a sense. They do not get ruined in, with time. They get better with time, with repeated thinking, with repeated contemplation. Now third, he says, human sympathy is at a minimum. We do not project ourselves at all strongly into the characters. They are like shapes moving in another world. We feel indeed that the pattern of their movements has a profound relevance to our own life, but we do not imaginatively transport ourselves into theirs. The story of Orpheus makes us sad, but we are sorry for all men, rather than vividly sympathetic with him, as we are, say, with Chaucer's Troilus. This is another key distinction that we're going to see over and over and over again. The characters in a myth are not characters in the way that like, a chara- the characters in you know, a book today tend to be. The, the characters in Of Mice and Men or The Lord of the Flies are people. We are meant to sympathize and empathize with those people. We are supposed to celebrate when they win, and we're supposed to mourn when they lose. We are excited when Captain America overcomes his enemy. We are disappointed when Captain America watches his friends die in Infinity War. Spoiler alert. Um, But as much as that is like this fundamental way that we interact with art, it is something that we are missing in myth. We do not feel... Like we are going along with Orpheus on his journey into the Underworld. What we feel is that Orpheus is speaking for all of us. That there is something way more about human nature or about the nature of the universe than just, you know, we like Orpheus because he's a cool dude. Most myths are not going to give us the chance to identify with Orpheus. They're going to constantly keep us at a distance from Orpheus. Um, Where, you know, the usual movie telling practice is to, like, get your protagonists and your audience on the same page as quickly as possible. Like, by having the protagonist do something nice or, you know, struggle with something. Um, They, you know, trip over themselves or they do something stupid and you, as a result, feel sympathy for them. Sympathy is not what's at stake in a myth. The characters are bigger than people. They're bigger than you and me. They are bigger than we could hope to fill. They are stand-ins, symbols, ciphers. They represent the entirety of human experience. Um, so keep that in mind. Uh, remember that like you are going to engage with these myths, if you do it right, on a level that you will not engage with the average story. Um, it's a very different way that you will sort of appreciate it. Um, now the fourth is myth is always in one sense of the the word fantastic it deals with impossibles and preternaturals and there's a part of me that wants to push back against this especially because I think that like there is something mythic about certain mundane stories Um, you can tell myths in ways that do not involve like gods and monsters and heroes and superpowers and so on and so forth Um, but I think that on the whole he is right like Even if you do manage to tell the myth of Orpheus as, you know, a realistic story about a dude trying to, like, save his wife from the hospital, at the end of the day, that story is still going to be about fate, about doom, about powers greater than ourselves. Um, So on some level, yes, he's right. I think you can frame it in a realistic or mundane setting, but at the end of the day, it will always speak to something supernatural, something bigger than any human experience. It is, in some way, fantastic, impossible, preternatural. Um, So I think that's appropriate. But I am going to push back against number five. The experience may be sad or joyful, but it is always grave. Comic myth, in, in my sense of myth, is impossible. And I think that one's just kind of flat-out wrong. Like, there are myths that I'm going to totally tell as jokes. Um, So, for example, there's this great myth about Hephaestus. Hephaestus is this lame forge god. And by lame, I mean, like, physically lame. He is crippled. Um, He is also, as far as the Greeks are concerned, lame in the euphemistic sense. I.e., he is kind of a joke, and nobody likes him, and he sucks. Um, for various reasons, which we'll get into later when we talk about Hephaestus. But for now, God Hephaestus, Forge God, he is lame, he is ugly, and he has a wife who is the most beautiful goddess in all of Olympus, Aphrodite. She is the goddess of love, she is the goddess of sex, everybody wants to be with Aphrodite, it's a thing. And Aphrodite regularly sleeps with Ares, the war god. Um, They frequently cheat on Hephaestus behind his back. But Hephaestus has picked up on this. So Hephaestus being really crafty and clever he makes this net like this really impressive net that even gods can't break out of and he like sets the net out on their bed and then when Aphrodite and Ares get together in the bed they take off all their clothes and they're getting ready to do the business and Hephaestus snares them in the net and he like ties them up and he carries them into the whole panoply of Olympus like the whole all the gods are congregated and he drags his net over his shoulder like Santa Claus, and he's like, hey look! Look what I found! And he's absolutely subjecting Ares and Aphrodite to ridicule. And I want to emphasize, this is an absurd scene. Like, here we are, all these gods are pointing laughing at poor naked Aphrodite and Ares, stuck in the net together. Um, it's just this huge joke, but weirdly, it can be both silly and comical and funny at the same time as it's moving and tragic and sad like yes it's hilarious can you imagine like godly Ares with his mighty physique like stuck in this net trying to like push his way out of it and like trying to like grab at the links and tearing and to no avail and aphrodite is probably like whining and upset He's just like, let me go i can't believe that you did this to me i'm going to be i'm gonna get you so hard for this like it's ridiculous But think of the implications. This is actually really sad, what Hephaestus is doing. Like, he is literally bringing them out to ridicule them, but in the process he's also revealing how much he's been cheated on. There is something simultaneously very moving about this situation, as it is very silly. Likewise, there's also a veiled threat here. Because Hephaestus can make a net that traps gods... Um, at the same time as Hephaestus is like carrying out his own humiliation into the front of all of these gods and goddesses, he is also basically saying, don't screw with me or I will get you. Like You think that this is embarrassing, just wait until you figure out what I've come up with if you cross me. That's one of the things that I think it, Lewis is right about here. It can be silly and it can be comical, but if it is, it's also going to be something else. There's layers to these myths. They can be many things simultaneously. Um, at the same time, this myth is absurd and sort of this ridiculous mocking of you know basic human sexual behavior. At the same time, as it's tragic, especially for those who don't uh, fit normal like standards of beauty and attractiveness. But it can also be menacing, dangerous. Um, It is Hephaestus saying that, you know, don't mess with people who know what they're doing, who have powers that you don't fully understand. Um, There's a lot going on, and myths will frequently do that. So it won't be comic in the sense that it's frivolous, but it can be comic, funny, silly, at the same time as it's serious. Um, Like, do not think that these are now exclusive terms. They frequently won't be in this class. Now, the last thing he says is the experience is not only grave, but awe-inspiring. We feel it to be numinous. It is as if something of great moment had been communicated to us. The recurrent efforts of the mind to grasp, we mean chiefly to conceptualize this something, are seen in the persistent tendency of humanity to provide myths with allegorical explanations. And after all allegories have been tried, the myth itself continues to feel more important than they. What he is getting at here is, I think, a culmination of what he's been saying up until this point. Myths have an importance that transcends the story, or the telling of the story, or anything to do with that. Orpheus can be interpreted allegorically. We can see this as you know being a confirmation that death is somehow inevitable, that all of our efforts to escape death will ultimately prove fruitless. And that's true. The myth does communicate this idea. But it's also bigger than that. Like Anytime that you sit there and try and interpret a myth, try and change it into just one track of thought, you will be woefully falling short of it. Like I said with Hephaestus, you can interpret that myth three or four different ways, perhaps more than I ever did. And all of the explanations that I came up with will probably sound kind of weak. It doesn't do justice to everything that's going on. There's more to it. There's always more to it. It's always more important it resonates with us more deeper than any explanation can. So while you may be able to interpret the myth of Orpheus, or the myth of Hephaestus catching Ares and Aphrodite, or the myth of the Hesperides in a variety of ways, the explanation is always going to fall short. It's always going to mean something deeper to you than normal words can express. Um, So keep that in mind as well. Like, if there was a way to express these ideas that did not involve telling a myth, presumably the Greeks would have figured out how to do it. Likewise, if there was a way for us to express these big conceptual ideas, these like deep uh, things that inform the human condition, we would have come up with a better way than a myth to express it, but we can't. Somehow myths speak to us more deeply than even clear-cut prosaic language. Somehow these myths speak to us in a way that even scientific explanation doesn't seem quite true to. There is a greater truth in these presentations than even what we typically understand truth to me. So keep that in mind as well. But I'm already running out of time, like I've already been going for a good hour and 10 minutes at this point, I was kind of shooting for an hour and 15, so let's talk about Plato in the last few minutes of this lecture, because I do want to stress one other really important thing about the myth, something that I did talk about earlier, but which is just brought into such clear perspective, because keep in mind that Plato is a contemporary of the myth writers. Not like he lived at the same time as Hesiod and Homer, but he is dealing with the myths in the culture where they are most appreciated. Um, Hesian Homer wrote in probably like 800 or 700 BCE. Um, Plato is writing in 400 to 300 BCE. So this is like, these stories are already 400 years old, the Plato. Um, but Plato is a part of the Greek classical moment. Like he is one of the greatest Greek writers ever. He is the greatest philosopher who ever lived by most reckonings. To the point that like philosoph- great philosophers have said that all philosophy is just footnotes to Plato. And you come as no surprise that, you know, me, the philosopher, includes Plato in our discussion of what myths are. Um, but I want you especially to notice the way that Plato talks about myth in The Republic. Um, because this whole discussion is about, like, all right, how do we make the perfect state? And it does not take very long before Plato gets to how do we teach our children, which is basically what this passage is all about. Um, and importantly, he immediately jumps to, what stories are we going to tell our kids? What myths are we going to tell to our children? And you'll notice he rules out, he censors, he rejects both, by name, Hesiod and Homer. The two single most important myth writers in the entire Greek classical tradition. And there's a couple things that I want to stress about this. First off, notice why. For Plato, it is assumed that children learn their moral values from myths, which, if you have a Greek scholar in ancient Greece telling you that this is how they understand myth, then you should probably take that seriously. For Plato, all Greek education, all moral education, all like intellectual education, insofar as like how does the world work, it comes from myth. So it is crucially important to Plato to only tell true myths and not the ones of Hesiod and Homer. Only tell myths that paint the gods as being beneficial or benevolent or good and not these stories of like Zeus running around behind his wife's back and then sleeping with random mortal women because that's unbefitting the gods to Plato. That is untrue. It is a lie. But notice also what this means. Um... I want to stress in this class that myths are bound up with a lot of the cultures that they are founded in. Like, myth is at one part the religion of the ancient Greeks, it is the entertainment of the ancient Greeks, it is the sort of cultural assumptions and the cultural legacy of the ancient Greeks, it is what they do for fun, and it is also bound up with what they believe in and what they are required to observe. But the way that myth works is very different from the way that like our religious scriptures in our day work like if you go up to a baptist preacher and say um i don't think that your bible tells the story of adam and eve right here's how it really went and then you proceed to invent on the spot a new story about adam and eve you will get chucked out of the church if you're lucky um if you're not lucky the congregation will like rise up and grab you and tear you to pieces This is not acceptable in Christianity, for various reasons, which we'll talk about later on in the class. But it is for Plato. Plato can literally say Homer and Hesiod are bad for us. Our fundamental scriptures, so to speak, are wrong. And people will hear him out. They'll disagree with him, sure, they will even call him impious at certain times, and in fact Socrates, the character who Plato is portraying here, will be executed for impiety, so, you know, let's keep this with a grain of salt, but a certain amount of creativity is okay. Plato will tell his own myths, we will even read some of them in this class, and he will tell them for pedagogical reasons. He will use them to explain his own vision of the world and how the universe works, and they will very much sort of be set up as rival myths to the existing myths that he's either riffing off or just ignoring entirely. But this is acceptable, and Plato's myths enter the canon. Like these days, if you are trying to read myths of ancient Greece and you get like a collection like Edith Hamilton's collection, or you get the tellings like we'll encounter an extra mythology, they will frequently just include Plato's myth as part of the mythic story overall. They will see no distinction. So what I want to stress is you can get creative with these. Plato doesn't have a problem with just coming up with his own myths and calling them true. And everybody will just agree to that. They are moral. They are educational. They are also malleable. And I do not want to make, like, a strong statement about how the Greeks view their myths at this point. That's something we have to kind of, like, put together as we go. But I want you to keep this interpretation in mind, Plato's skepticism about myths, his condemnation of some of the great myth writers that we'll be encountering in this class. The fact that he is willing to reject them, and the fact that he is willing to reject them because he thinks that they are pernicious, that they are doing damage to his culture, indicates that the attitude of the Greeks towards the myths is not the same as we deal with our sacred texts. It is not Bible, truth to them. It is truth in a different way. And that's something we're going to have to like piece together as we go, I'm afraid. Um, so keep this in mind. Keep all this crazy stuff in mind. Like if it doesn't make any sense to you, that's fine. Just think about the various stuff that I've talked about over the course of this possibly too long lecture, this possibly way too confusing lecture, and keep it in mind as you read. Keep in mind the fact that these stories had a purpose and that that purpose could have many different individual sub-purposes that maybe everyone who read myth did so differently but at the same time that way of reading myth is baked into the culture in which it's found. Keep in mind that there are all of these elements that Lewis talked about to myth, this gravity, this importance, this sort of story as being abstracted even from the way that it's being told. A story that resonates with us on some deep level that we don't fully understand. Um, And keep in mind, keep an eye out for myths as you go through your day-to-day activities. When you sit down to Netflix, keep an eye out for myths, not necessarily retellings of the old myths, but even the new myths that we believe today. Try to get into the habit of looking at the stories that our culture is telling as stories our culture is telling itself. Stories that our culture is trying to use to educate or to inform or to instill virtues and values in us. Try and see what the author is trying to tell you when you watch a movie or a TV show, when you play a video game, when you read a book, whether it's for this class or elsewhere. Um, Myths are all around us, both the old and the new. Stay alert for them. See if you can recognize them. And by all means, talk to me about them. Like, let's bring them up in class. Let's have that conversation. Let's debate this definition. Let's question. Because this isn't cut and dry. Like, you talk to a different professor, they will give you a different definition of myth. This is my definition of myth. This is what I'm going to be looking for, and what I'm going to encourage you to look for as well. Not just because it's important for this class, but because it's important for your whole way of understanding the, the world. It's for your philosophy. It's for your perspective. It's for your worldview. And it's to keep you from falling into dogma to understand where these stories are taking root in places where they don't necessarily belong. In the same way that a good myth instills virtue and instills proper behavior and sort of like keeps society going the right direction, a bad myth, as Plato points out here, can do incredible damage. So be alert for those as well. In the meantime, we will talk about Tolkien in my next lecture, which I actually intend to record like in several moments, so that should be up shortly. Um. Don't worry if Tolkien is baffling. Like, Mythopoeia is probably the single most complicated and convoluted work we're going to read this entire semester. So I encourage you to read it, like, once, maybe even twice if you can afford it, um, and then I'll talk about it in the next lecture and we'll, we'll sort out everything that's going on there. So don't panic if it doesn't make any sense at first blush. Do not just, like, bail on the class because Tolkien sucks. Um, I promise, it'll make sense. Just give me a chance to explain it. Alright, I will see you then. Enjoy your myth reading in the meantime.